my first ever podcast. Hello, and welcome to Nevermind the Bar Charts with myself, Mark Pack. It's something a little different on the show this time, as I'm going to be talking about the 1960 US presidential election, or rather a board game about the 1960 US presidential election. This was the John F. Kennedy versus Richard Mulhouse Nixon nail-bitingly close contest. And to talk about the board game, I've got with me fellow Lib Dem, former Lib Dem Federal Policy Committee member, and I guess fellow geek, we might perhaps say. Hello, geek. Jim Williams. Welcome to the show, Jim. Hello, hello, hello. Lovely to be here. My first ever podcast. Wow, for such a digitally savvy person. <laughs> quite remarkable. Well, I'll try and make your first ever podcast as Thank you. Be gentle. Enjoyable as possible. Um, <laughs> I guess we should maybe start with a quick recap on the 1960 US election, because that will be well known to some people, but it is an election from a good long before even I was born, let alone when you were born. Yeah. And I've learned everything I know about it from this game. Um, when I actually got this game, I had to look up the election to figure out what happened. Yeah. So over to you. Yeah. I don't understand why there is not a brilliant Hollywood movie that has been made of this election, because it has got so much about it. Firstly, the two protagonists, John F. Kennedy for the Democrats, Richard Mulhouse Nixon for the Republicans, in their own way, two of the most famous US presidents, now, Kennedy particularly for his huge charisma and then the tragedy of his assassination. And you can flick on a hired number Freeview channel most evenings and find some sort of conspiracy show about <laughs> Kennedy's assassination. But Kennedy is the ne- one of the US presidents most known and heard of by people yeah. who don't really know anything otherwise about US politics and history. And then Richard Nixon, a two-time presidential election winner, but then kicked out of office off the back of the Watergate scandal. And it was Nixon who withdrew the US troops from Vietnam. So in terms of two of the biggest events in US history, but also ones that have you know, international recognition, uh, in Vietnam and, and Watergate, he was at the heart of them. So this was the election that brought those two together. It's sort of like the equivalent, I guess, of a British general election that saw Gladstone and Disraeli up against each other, two titans of mid-century US politics. And it was nail-bitingly close. It was so, so close as an election. Even biographers who are favourable to Kennedy find it hard to conclude with certainty that there was no electoral corruption that tipped the election just in Kennedy's favour. Really? Uh, in both the Illinois and Texas, there are some interesting questions about the Democrat Party machinery really? and the sequence in which the votes came in. It was a turning point in the geography of the US. We now think of California as a diehard, Republic, uh, diehard Democrat state and the South is generally an area of Republican strength. In 1960, California was, if anything, a bit of a Republican stronghold, and the South was dominated by the Democrats. And there's a huge change in the political geography of the US that happens with the South swinging from being a Democrat heartland to a Republican heartland off the back of the Democrats taking up the cause of civil rights. And 1960 is at the heart of that massive social and political change. And then, of course, as if all of that isn't enough, on top of that, 1960 is the election that saw basically the first use of segmented marketing oh. elections. So Simulomatics Corporation, okay. about which there's a brilliant book by Jill Lepore called If Then that came out a year or two ago. It's won all sorts okay. of awards, absolutely rightly. They secretly work behind the scenes on segmenting the electorate into 438 different segments. Oh, this story, yes. Okay. And there is a great novel by Eugene Burdick uh, called The 438, which is a, essentially a fictionalised account. And there was all sorts of then falling out between the Kennedy campaign and Simulomatics about how much public credit Simulomatics subsequently came, came for Kennedy. So in terms of whether you're looking at the drama of the big figures, whether you're looking at massive social issues like so civil rights, whether you're looking at the political geography of the US, where you're looking, whether you're looking at campaign tactics and marketing, 1960 has it all in spades. So it is absolutely the right US election to do a board game out of. And 
it should be, I mean, it should be a Netflix 16-parter amazing TV series or a Hollywood movie that has everyone raving. And yet it's it in that there's there's been a there's a quite a good documentary film about about it, but it it's surprisingly unrepresented in fiction. But it's not surprisingly unrepresented in board games. If I watch that documentary, Mark, am I any more likely not to lose to you at this game <laughs> next time we play it? What I have, dear listeners, what I have very kindly <laughs> not been mentioning so far is Jim and I have played this game twice and the score is currently 2-0. And not only 2-0, I mean, the first one was close, but the second one, you absolutely thrashed me. I think, I think when I asked you, has any presidential contest been this heavily weighted towards one candidate? Your answer was something like, only once in the history of the US has anyone lost an election that I did point out that you did better than Walter Mondale had did against Reagan in 1984, but that's not behind. You're extremely kind. You're extremely kind. I mean, we'll come on to sort of what makes the game (laughs) so fun in a moment, but I think that's one of the things I really like about the game is although I may have won quite comprehensively, it only swung really heavily my way right near the end of the game. Yeah, both and times. therefore all, it, it's a really fun game because all the way through, it feels like it's quite close. In that sense, I guess it's a bit like I don't know, perhaps the nineteen ninety two or or twenty fifteen general elections in Britain that you look at the election result at the end of it and you think that was quite you know that was one thing, but in the run up to it, it felt like it may very easily have been a different answer. So it was quite a fun game in that respect and before we get into some of the overlap between reality and the game let's talk a little bit about the game itself first so Jim do you want to just give a little bit of a sketch of the basics of the game yeah absolutely so what uh, you should imagine is a, a large board that shows a map of the United States with uh, the electoral college um, values of each state as they were in 1960. And one player is Kennedy, the other player is Nixon. You're sitting facing each other across this map and you are vying for control of each of these states. And the game will play out over, I think, nine fixed turns. And by the end of it, you you tot up the electoral college values of each state and see how horribly Mark has won. <laughs> Uh, the the way it uh, works is that each of the 50 states is essentially a little tug of war and each player is choosing which state to invest their time and their focus in to try and pull it in their direction. And if they bring it just a little bit over the line in a first-past-the-post approach, they then win that state and the other player has to try and pull it back. But obviously there are 50 states, you can't invest everywhere. So the main question is, which states do you invest in? Where do you move your candidate around the map in order to concentrate in which regions? And then of course you are distracted by the more strategic questions, the big issues of the day, how far to invest in media and advertising, how to get endorsements. And all of this together creates a situation, as you said, Mark, where as you're playing through the game, it's all nail-bitingly close, um, right to the last minute where you do the delightful arithmetic of figuring out the electoral college votes. And because um, the first time we played, it was the very last card play of the yes. very last turn that swung the game to me. But it wasn't just that that was like you're lucky and you roll a double six as the very last dice roll and it's just pure luck. There no, was, no, no. There was a build-up to it that set up that possibility for the very last card of the game to win. But obviously I particularly enjoyed that because it made me <laughs> I won. But what it meant also was you hadn't, say, spent the preceding half an hour thinking, oh, I'm about to lose. No, no, no. Which is really important. So I think that the listeners know that this game, the first time you play it, it's going to take you a good three to four hours. And probably once you've played it two or three times, I imagine you can get it down to two hours. But it's too much fun um, to to want to hurry. And it would be terrible if for the last hour or half hour, you just knew you were going to lose. And the game does a brilliant job of avoiding that. You can clearly have a sense that the other player might be ahead, but there are always so many options for how you can try and win things back. And it's only ever really revealed in the last turn or two uh, who has won. Yeah, um, and there's a really crucially important. 
clever, almost self-writing mechanism in that respect, isn't there? That to resolve various things that with other games you might have dice rolls, you pull coloured cubes from a bag. Yeah. And each player has their own coloured cubes and you start off with equal numbers in the bag. But you can do various things in the game that give you more or fewer cubes. And so you can end up with a bag that's, say, heavily tilted your way or heavily tilted your opponent's way. And then when you do a draw from the bag, you might get your colour cube out and therefore win whatever the thing is that that draw was being done for. But of course, the very act of doing that has then tilted the bag's contents a little bit towards towards the other player. So although you can have a run of success, that run of success in itself gives the other player a better chance of success. Looking at sort of accounts online from other people who have played the game, it, it doesn't seem to be a game where someone can run up a big lead early on and then it's just dull all the way through. This is much more a roller coaster, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And what's wonderful about it is that th- there is some luck in the game. And I think we'll, we, we should talk more about that. But, the, you know, the real focus of the random... <laughs> Entirely. Absolutely. I was thinking about that, actually, given that you have now published, I believe, what, the third edition of the game, of the book entitled 101 Ways to Win an Election. Is that right? Um, which Which I did read five years ago, I've decided that next time we play, you need to have a handicap of 101 electoral college votes. Uh, and that way I may just about win. But the, 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 the luck, this key luck element in the game, the bag, I think it's worth focusing on it a bit more. One, because it's just, just this delicious like tactile moment. You reach into a black bag, you can't see what you're getting. You're pulling out one of about 20 cubes that are in there that are blue or red. And if you, bring out your colour, triumph, and you're able to do what it is you wanted to do. But if you bring out the opponent's colour, disaster, you can't you can't do what you've wanted to do. And it's this moment of kind of real tension. And as you say, the way that this bag fills up with your colour is by um, taking actions that are perhaps more gentle on the board itself. Whereas if you take actions, and we'll explain, I think, in a moment how you choose between these two routes. But if you take actions that are more intensive on the board, you aren't necessarily investing less in that bag itself. And what that means is that it creates a so-called catch the leader mechanic, where if one player is doing really well on the board, they are going to suffer in that uh, random bag draw every time you try and resolve an uncertain event. So that's a really in my view, actually kind of beautiful mechanic that means that even though this game is four hours long, the whole way through, um, it is ensuring that there is an even balance between the two players. But without it ever feeling like you are being helped, it's instead just slightly tilting the odds in your favour. Yeah. It's very delicate. And it also feels quite natural, doesn't it? It's It doesn't feel like it's an artificial mechanism that because I've won several draws from the bag, therefore... I automatically have to do less well in the future. It, it feels, and I, for me at least, I think it works well because, as you'll know from the couple of times we played, I insist on misnaming one of the <laughs> yeah, you one do. of the features of the game. So one and try and make me misname it too. Yeah, one um, of the things you can do essentially each turn is spend some of your activity points on something that's called rest. And though the 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 more that you spend on rest, the more cubes you get to put into the bag. And I can sort of see why the game designers call it rest, but I've taken to call it fundraising. Because that feels actually a very natural way of explaining what's going on, which is you can go, you can spend time talking to potential donors rather than out campaigning trying to reach voters. And if you do that, your support doesn't go up as much as if you were spending the time out directly reaching voters but it gives you a resource money that then means you're more successful at other things later in the campaign i think i think that's right and so i I, so one of my little pet peeves about the game is i would rename rest to fundraising i think it just makes a lot more sense obviously one of my other pet peeves about the game uh, i think i've only got three you uh i should Uh. my second is the design of the card so each turn you get dealt cards and you have to play cards and the cards have on them a score about how many rest fundraising points you get if you play that card. And the rules, even the rules say, remember not to forget to take your rest points. 
because it's the base it basically it's the first thing you should do when you play your card but the number of rest points you should take is buried in the middle of the right hand side of the card and so even the rule book when they were writing they realized we've not designed these cards well enough people are, are always failing to do this thing we're going to have to remind them and there's a very successful online reviewer of board games who i always think as canadian check shirt guy if, uh, <laughs> if 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 any of you if, if you know if you've seen any of his reviews you'll know why he comes over as very canadian and he has very loud check shirts and you know he even he said remember to take the rest points right so the, the design of the cards is a lovely example of bad user interface <laughs> i think that's i think that's fair i think that's right yeah I guess the in defense of the designer of the game of those cards in the game, it feels like those cards fit a template that GMT games always use for their cards in these sorts of games. Yeah. And for this game, that unfortunately doesn't work very well. That's right. And we and we should explain that GMT games is a um, a publisher that focuses on I would say conflict, uh, elections, war games, political conflicts, and um they are not famous for having the most beautiful games, let's say. Um, their rule books are often dense with numbered and subnumbered paragraphs, a little bit like a certain constitution that you and I might have read a few times. Um, and um, they don't always invest so much in the quality of the art. This game is mm. an exception. The game does look gorgeous. It's, it is absolutely lovely to look at. Um, it's a real pleasure, just the physical act of playing it as you take that state and you bring it to your side or you pick up the Electoral College marker for that state. There's that tactile joy to it, and it is very pretty as well. But I do agree that um, the design of the cards themselves leaves much to be desired. But I know, I know you have your third peeve, and I know what it's going to be. Um, before we get to it, though... <laughs> I, I think we should um I think we should tell people about these cards because the yeah. cards are really, really important for the game um, as to how it all works. And that they're also part of that delight of making it such a balanced game throughout. Do you mind if I do that? Can, yeah, I, can I jump in on cards? So this is one of a subgenre of board games known as card-driven games. And it's called card-driven because there is a deck of cards, each of which represents uh, an, an occasion in the campaign or a particular personality um, or some trend that might be going on in society. So you might draw a card that would be um, Henry Cabot Lodge, for example. Cabot, Cabot, no idea. Cabot, I think. Cabot, um, Henry Cabot Lodge. He was Nixon's vice presidential he, candidate. Yes, he was one of the sort of prominent politicians of the time. And so there are various cards, aren't there, that are based around some of the big key political figures. Yes. You might draw a card that's Lyndon Johnson, or you might draw a card that would be about a famous incident in the campaign that Mark would be able to tell you the context about. Something about Nixon not shaving well. Is that right? Yes, in the first televised debate so the one of the other things i forgot to mention that was amazing about the 1960 us election is first televised debate first president oh, right. televised debate sweden if i remember rightly had got there first with the first televised party leader or presidential candidate debate in the national election but us in the 1960 was the uh, was the moment that really put that idea of televised debates again on the global stage and nixon uh, ha didn't look so good on the on the tv in part because of not having shaved closely enough really yeah yeah so if you're the kind of person who knows a lot about this campaign or about american politics you will delight in drawing these cards and seeing that something that you know about is represented on, on one of these cards and it might be that moment i think there's one called credibility gap and the photo you can see in the credibility gap card is the famous shot of nixon I assume in later life, I don't know, um, uh, poking Khrushchev in the chest. Um, was that during the 1960 election or did that happen later? I'm not sure, actually. I guess. I don't know. I have to ponder that. Carry on talking and so, I will think. Yeah, yeah dig, dig that out, out, of your, um, out of your hard drives. So um, you um, have these cards in your hand, enough cards to be able to 
on your turn do precisely five things. Um, and so over the course of the game, each player is going to have five decisions, plus a little bit per turn, fixed number of cards over the course of the game. And the joy here and the horror, the deep, deep pain and delight is that the cards are roughly one third tilted to Kennedy, one third tilted to Nixon, and one third advantageous to both players. So when you draw your hand, there's a serious chance that you might have a hand of cards, all of which benefits the opponent. And you're spending your turn trying to figure out how on earth to mitigate this disaster. Um, or you might draw a balanced hand or perhaps a hand of cards that's really favorable to you. And on each of these cards, um, the card gives you an option, every card. Either you can play it for the um, event or the personality that is named on the card. If you play the Lyndon B. Johnson card, you're going to get some, uh, the Kennedy player will get some advantage associated with Lyndon B. Johnson. But each card also has this number of campaign points on it. So you can choose, do I spend this for the event that is characterful and, and specific and, and historical and will advantage me or the opponent? Or do I play it for uh, the campaign points, which is what lets me pull a state in my favor or perhaps invest in, in media and advertising. And because this deck of cards is evenly split across the two players and you're picking up a mixture of cards in favor of you and in favor of the opponent, every single turn is excruciatingly difficult in figuring out which card to play in what order, which of the many little tricks that you can use to try and stop this disastrous event happening or play this to your advantage. Um, and then I think there is a, um, the, the problem that you mentioned with the design of the cards is absolutely right. And that's even more so in the portion of the game. It's quite a strange portion of the game actually that simulates the television debates themselves. I don't know many games that do this, you know, for all but one turn, you're playing one game. And then all yeah, of a sudden, mini other game, there's this basically. mini game that you do for one turn, totally different from the rest of the game. And that is a third level of information on the same cards. The first level being the event or personality it's describing. The second being the campaign points versus rest points. And then the third being how this card plays into the debates. Oh no, and actually there's a fourth level, isn't there? There's how it actually, how the, each card can also impact on the final election. So you've got these four different levels of information on these cards. And I think you're right, Mark, that they don't do a very good job of setting out the information on that card in a way that makes it easy for the eye to read. The thing um, I think the cards do very well is, I've never played Magic the Happening, <laughs> which is a, a very it's it's magic the gathering <laughs> oh sorry yes magic the gathering um, yeah <laughs> one of the things i do know about it uh is the huge number of cards there are and yes. therefore how even very experienced players regularly come up against new combos of cards that you can play yes and so in that sense you know, there are some games where you can put together a clever combination of tactics and the more you play the game and the better you learn those tricks, it almost becomes a game that you can master. I think, That's right. I think 1960, this game, is a bit more like, well, maybe chess or magic, the whatever, <laughs> in that unless you're phenomenally experienced, and perhaps even if you still are phenomenally experienced, just the number of combos and so on are way beyond your ability to learn and, you know, memorise over time. And so there's also a, a degree of freshness about, ooh, I've got these two cards in my hand in this turn. If I was to play them That's in right. this particular order, there's something really clever I could do about it. So, so it allows you to perennially feel like you're being quite smart without it ever feeling like, oh, you're just up against somebody who's played this game umpteen times and therefore they know all the tricks and therefore you're sunk. Yes, that, that is absolutely right. I, I, I will say that there are, 
So th this game, one of the two designers of this game, a chap called Jason Matthews, also designed a game that for a while was the top rated board game in the world, according to uh, that atlas of all things board gamery, boardgamegeek.com. Uh, the other game he designed very famously is called Twilight Struggle, which is quite similar to 1960. Similar mechanics, it's also got a map. But rather than being a simulation of a single election, it's a simulation of the entirety of the Cold War from 1945 to 1991, um, which takes about six hours to play. And that game got so well rated on Board Game Geek, partially because the people who rate games on Board Game Geek would tend to be more like perhaps you and I, more interested in um, the the um, sort of really juicy strategic details and decisions of a game, rather than perhaps people who are more interested in really light, fun, enjoyable social games like, um, I don't know, card games or, or whatever. So um, people like you and me, I think, are often the, the, the voters on, on Board Game Geek. And Twilight Struggle got to the top point precisely because there were a small number of cards in that game, which, if you memorize them, essentially created a game within a game of both players knowing whether each of those key 10 or 20 cards have been played. And when they come up in the game, the randomness of when they arrive would create for those masters of that game the, the differences from, from game to game. So, for example, in, in, in the Cold War game, it would essentially determine whether early in the Cold War, whether the, um, the West managed to hold West Berlin or not, which would, of course, you know, uh, shape the whole of the rest of the Cold War. And that, for me, is actually quite a strong criticism of that game, although I love it, Twilight Struggle, and I would apply the same criticism to this game in 1960, which is there are a small number of really very important cards um, that if one player has played the game three or four times, they might remember, and another player who's not played it at all wouldn't be aware of. Um, for instance, Mark, the cards that will... Um, take away from the opponent their ability to bring their candidate into the field and really get a big turn, or the card that will allow you to do a whistle-stop tour of, of the United States. Yeah, although I think those cards are so context-dependent that I think the mo both of the times we've played, the most important cards have been different. So yes. I'm not sure that 1960 does quite... I think 1960 is at least probably better than Twilight Struggle in that sense. I agree. That... It is. It absolutely is. I would recommend that... I, I would say one, one um, downside of this kind of game is that it does tend to benefit two people playing it together quite a lot or playing it with people of a similar level of understanding, which clearly means that I'm fated to just losing to you <laughs> for the next five times we play it. Um, but lots of games are like that too, in the same way that, you know, as a chess grandmaster, you, you're not going to want to play against someone who's, you know, much lower in level than you and, and vice versa. But that's something just to be aware although of. I think that's true, although I think that given the flexibility in the game, if the only thing you know are the cards in your hand, I don't think you're at that much of a disadvantage. That's right. Yeah, uh, you know, if, if if you don't know what cards you might get in the next turn, and you don't really know what cards your opponent might have, it's not that much of a disadvantage. Whilst yeah. I think in something like chess, certainly, there is a huge value in knowing what the typical patterns are, etc., and and so on. Um, but you you asked yes. a question earlier, which we should maybe come back to, which is how useful is it to know about uh, what really happened when when playing the game, how much of an advantage is it? And yeah. I think, I mean, the thing I really like about the game is it's one of those games that is gently sort of educational without being in your face educational. So the, the fact that it's a real map of the US with all of the states in the right places and so on, I mean, it, it you know, tells you something about the geography of the US, you know, you know, without sort of forcing it down your throat in a didactic fashion, yeah. you learn about but also you learn about interesting things like how California used to be a Republican stronghold. Right. Well, the South used to be Democratic, exactly. which I did not know at all until I looked at the map for this game and saw that the South was all blue. Exactly. Um, and, and the way that there's a little Republican pocket of strength up in the Northeast in terms of New Hampshire and Vermont and so on, which, again, is very different yeah. from, from current U.S. politics. So I like that, that the way it sort of teaches you 
information, but also the way it gives you a feel for what a campaign is like, particularly when you rename rest to fundraising, that yes. sense of the choice between vote, going after voters and going after money is a very real choice. And those choices about geography. So one of the questions for whoever plays the Kennedy side in the game is all pretty much the Midwest and the West Coast is a Republican zone. And California starts off Republican and most of the Midwest uh, and far West, as it were, is, is Republican. So should you bother with campaigning in the West of the country or not? Right. Or should you just write it off? Yeah. And the way you, I think both times we played, it really boiled down to two or three swing states that were where the candidates were hammering again and again and again and again. Yeah. Again, in a way that is very reflective of real elections. Yes. You think back over the last few US presidential elections, in each of them, you ended up with a small handful of swing states, despite the yes. fact that it's a national election and all of that. So a lot of the dynamics of real politics, I do think, come through a bit in the game. So certainly I think playing the game helps you better understand what goes on in political campaigns. I'm not sure how much whether the reverse is true, because I although obviously I beat you both times because of spirit, <laughs> I'm not quite sure why I beat you. We are we are we are perplexed. You're you're being a gentleman. I mean there are there are some clear errors I made in both games, and I can't point to any errors that you made. But at the same time, we did spend quite a long time trying to understand why my second loss was quite so catastrophic. Mm. Um, and I think this points to one thing that is both delightful about the game, but also might be frustrating for some new players, which is that, um, and I know that actually you pointed this out the first time we played it, didn't you? That nothing about how you learn the game actually helps you understand what is a good way to play mm. and what will help you win. Um, and there are a number of really elegant interlocking systems here. There's that rest or fundraising to indulge you um, system. There's the system about how not only are you choosing between campaigning in states or resting to you know, build up your funds, as it were, but you also choose between those two things and television advertising, which is a third area of competition. And the fourth is three key issues, defense, economy, and, and civil rights, I believe. Um, and all of these mechanisms, they have slightly different rules, which is going to be a little bit frustrating for a first time player. So I do very strongly recommend that one player spends a lot of time with the rule book, understanding the differences between those different systems. But once those differences in terms of how you make them work are understood, then there are the differences of how they interact with each other. And I think you and I, after two plays, are still trying to work through how important is the media in, in the Midwest? How, how important is it to try and get an endorsement in, in this area? How, how important are the issues? That is both wonderful in that it's this many-layered opaque puzzle, but also probably quite intimidating for a first uh, time player. Possibly, although, so you were the one who had done the detailed reading of the rules before we first played it. And obviously due to your excellent exposition of them, I didn't find it particularly confusing or baffling. And I think in particular, because what we were saying earlier about how you don't have one player builds up a lead, etc. It means if you play the first turn and do a few stupid things because you didn't quite understand, it doesn't really matter. Right. It's not like you can really hobble yourself. And there are plenty of games where a lot of people, what people enjoy is really optimising the first yes. turns and so on. And again, chess would be the most broadly obvious yeah. example of this, but this particularly applies with a lot of board games as well, doesn't it? And But you don't have that in 96. So I think when it comes to playing it, there is actually... A also quite a gentle learning curve. Uh, That's right. Or, or at least the, no, actually a gentle learning curve in the sense suggests it takes longer to learn that turn of phrase <laughs> is always used wrongly. What I what I, what I mean is it's quite forgiving of early mistakes that you might make because That's right. you you stuff up a few things. Actually, ironically, the net effect may well be that you've got more cubes in the bag. So <laughs> luck will come your way in the next well, turn and so on. 
one one thing that the game doesn't do very well in terms of its design, and I suspect this is where your your third peeve may may bring its head back up again, is that some games are really very very good at ensuring that there is a clear visual representation on the board and on the components of any important exceptions in the rules or differences in the rules. So, uh, for example, uh, I believe when you are investing in TV advertising, as opposed to when you're investing in a particular state campaign, instead of just being able to uh, put your support directly into that campaign, when doing it with the media and TV advertising, it's mediated by that bag we've talked about. You have to remember that when you're investing in the media, you actually have to draw a cube out of the bag and see if it's your color or not. And there's nothing really on the board around those media spaces that reminds you to do that. And so there are a few elements of the graphical design of the board itself that don't give the players all the kind of guide rails that they could be given uh, by, by a more detailed and thoughtful, I think, uh, design of the board. And as a result, I think at the sort of end of one turn and the start of the next, there's often a little bit of a pause for, right, okay, have we have we done everything that we need to do? Have we got all the end of turn housekeeping right? Have we followed all the right procedures? And so the pet peeve is, of course, <laughs> that on the, you've got two tracks, one for the turn, <clears throat> which you're on, and the other is for which phase you are within the turn. And that phase track, doesn't have a sort of phase zero start of turn bit you jump from end of phase the last phase of the previous turn to the first phase of the next turn on that track when actually in practice at least when we've been playing it you do have a a a, a pause for breath and a bit of housekeeping and that white cube that you therefore put on the track is always in the wrong place i think we should start a petition to GMT games. Let's see if we can get all the listeners like to the never mind the bar chart. Zero. You need a zero on the track. It's just it will revolutionise the world. <laughs> well, next time we play, I'll just I'll just draw a little zero on. Maybe get some tipex and just tipex a zero on for you. I, I guess one question: If anyone's listening to this and you know wondering whether that maybe this is a board game, would they enjoy it or not? is we should talk about the different sorts of enjoyment you can get from a board game. So I think one of the oh, yeah. things Great. I've enjoyed about this is what it teaches you about the real world. Mm. Uh, and there's a really powerful example, I think, I can remember from a while ago, actually, of a board game about the 1940 German invasion of France. And the thing that stays on in the public memory about that even if nothing else is that the french build the maginot line this reinforced line along their border between france and germany and then the germans just went round it through belgium and yeah. so the maginot line is often taken as an example of a sort of hugely expensive high profile project that was undone really easily because you know build these amazing hugely expensive and powerful imposing fortifications and the Germans just go around them instead. <laughs> but what is fascinating is when you lay out the pieces in that game, and I thought, well, I'll just imagine that I could, I just tried, let's forget the rules, let's just give myself a completely free setup. What would I want to put where and so on? Is I realized how closely I, you know, with that free setup, I ended up copying what the British and French high commands actually did in 1940. Right. Even though the basic account you get in through the history books is, oh, my goodness, weren't they stupid? But, you know, the Germans just went round and the British and French stupidly advanced far too far into Belgium and so on. And when you actually then think, well, let's just forget all the rules. Let's just look at the geography of the map. We've got the Maginot line. And what's the shortest distance from the end of the Maginot line to the coast? You think, oh, hang on a minute. I'm actually now thinking of exactly the same line of deployment as the French and British Kind of. right. I thought that just gave a really interesting, different insight. In, and I'm sure there are some history books on 1940 and so on, which would draw that out. But certainly the ones I've read tend to be very down on the what the French and British plans are. And for all that, clearly, that was a group of generals who were not very successful. Um, not, not complete idiots. And I thought it was only actually that game that therefore gave me a sense of what they might have been thinking. 
And similarly, I think with 1960, as you've touched on, that's right. like that's right. Democrat old dominance in in south in the south of the US, the game brings home really, really clearly. So for me, I think it's that what do I learn about the real world that is is the fun cause of enjoyment. And I think 1960 does that well. Um, it really does. Yeah, there's there's a I, I found the same. As you know, you know, my my discovery um that the South used to be Democrat, which which I had no idea about. And and in in fact, um I I mentioned to uh, my girlfriend that I was you know getting ready to play this this game with you and sent you know, a photo of that. And my girlfriend despises board games. She she thinks of them as making unnecessary decisions. Um so <laughs> um but I did send this photo going, look, the South is is the South was democratic in 1960. To which her response was, um, no, actually, I think her, her mother was in the room at the same time. Her mother actually was a, a teenager at the time of this election. And she is obviously very democratic now, very sort of, you know, anti some of the more unpleasant positions of the Republican Party. But in 1960, she actually picketed Kennedy. And she said that she did so because she didn't want those racist Democrats to get in. So yes, there's there's the, the the learning that comes from the game that way, but also the way that it just by by surprising you about the past leads you on to, to learn more. And and I don't think we mentioned that the events on the cards are all real things. Uh, yes. And in fact, that in fact, although not all of the events get played in the game, because you don't always play a card that way. I think every event is something that actually happened. I guess yes. there, there's, a, there's a small handful of generic events, which you could maybe argue whether or not they did happen, but basic, but they're really closely rooted in, in history. So it's quite fun in that sense, even if you're thinking, I don't want to play this card or, or you know, this card is a, a disaster for me. Just the reading of the event is, a, again, yeah, a very, great fun. very gentle, low key sort of education in American political history. And, and, and on, on the same note, when when I started, you know, just learning that my my girlfriend's mother had been politically active in this election, she told me that she'd actually met the vice presidential candidate Henry Cabot Lodge, but had misunderstood his name and thought he was called Henry Cabbage Lodge, and so for, you know, for all time in in my girlfriend's family, that politician is known as Henry Cabbage Lodge, which is lovely. The, the the other thing that I think the the game does a very good job of doing is, um, as you mentioned briefly earlier not only explaining why campaigns focus so much in swing states, but putting in the same way that that, that war game you're talking about put you in the position of the, the French and British generals, this game puts you in the position of the candidate and you are free to choose to invest your time in North Dakota should you want to. There's no rule telling Please you not do to. Next time, Jim. <laughs> Please do next time, Jim. Yes, yes, exactly. Well, you know, maybe this is the way in which you can give me your 101 point handicap is that you start only with North Dakota. Um, it's not that the rules say, okay, the candidates must focus on New York and Pennsylvania. It's that the structure of the game presents you with an abstracted version of the same decisions that the candidates in their campaign. And, and I love the focused. pairing of Pennsylvania and New York, because if you follow US politics a little bit, Pennsylvania being a swing state it, then, and that it still is now, seems quite unacceptable. But New York, you sort of think, what? New York? But New York was the home of the Rockefeller Republicans. It was like with California, it is part of the US that had a very strong Republican tradition that is now completely gone. And so, yeah, it's a, it, the, the pairing of the familiar and the unfamiliar in the way that very often the game really boils down to those two states is, is fun. And, and this is actually a good example of where there are a few cards that I think tread into that territory of being so powerful that if you don't know about them, it can be a bit a bit stinging. Oh, there is there are whole no, there's more specific, isn't there? There's right. three, I believe, three specific Rockefeller specific cards about swinging New York towards the Republicans. So you can invest really heavily in New York as the Democrat player, and then suddenly this damn Rockefeller chap comes out again for the third time in the game and yeah. says, nope, I have declared that New York is now Republican. But but, it's, but once you know that that's there, 
that fundamentally changes the experience of the game for both players. Because the first time round, it's this it's this discovery. It's like, oh God, New York has just switched to Republicans. Um, yes, in fact, I remember when I so I one of the reasons, dear listeners why Jim feels so strongly about this is he's been on the receiving end of some of these cards. And you're right. The first time I got one of those cards, I thought, oh, wow, this is like, yeah. a, you know, I've just pulled the Joker card or something. This feels yeah. super useful. But I guess in fairness to the game, there are other sets of cards that apply to other things. So I think the Absolutely. times we've played, the South has stayed fairly heavily Democrat, but there are a whole load of cards that are sort of the equivalent of the 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 on in fact on both sides of the civil rights issue that can either give the Republicans or the Democrats a huge boost in power. I think those new cards right. have been so important when we played because we had already got sucked into New York, Pennsylvania being the key battlegrounds. And that That's has right. we ended up with a slightly different geography. Uh, had one of us gotten for a sudden strategy, then it's a different set of cards that would have ended up being key. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think the listeners should know that you trounced me both as Nixon and as Kennedy. So it's exactly. not like well, it's I was on. I had these cards on, on my side liberal, one yes. time. <laughs> but speaking about being typical bloody on the fence liberals, I think one thing that this game does really um, ca- can be used to teach people um, or can you know, bring about just through discovery is just how abysmally unfair the first pass defense system is. Yes. Um, yes. Because all of those, the whole of the Midwest, sorry, the whole of the West, doesn't matter. The only state in the entirety of the West that matters for this game is California. And um, if you I'm were to be of sort a of cunning strategy <laughs> to try and then, if that's what you do, but like, no, you're right, I mean, isn't it? Have, at no point in either of our games did any of our candidates visit. Uh, no, I think it only happened once. Did any of our candidates visit? a state in the West that wasn't California. And it also, and, I and think... And good luck, Hawaii and Alaska. Yeah, Hawaii never, and Alaska. Never get just, any no way. No way. And so if, like me, and many others who I'm sure are listening, that you are, you know, a, a dedicated supporter of Campaign for Fair Votes in the UK, and particular the wonderful work of Make Votes Matter the UK entity that is spearheading that campaign, you can take kind of um, greatly enjoyable, righteous fury about the unfairness of the first past the post system um, as it is set forth in this game. So there's lots of different ways in which it can it can teach and learn, yeah. uh, teach and help you learn. And I think that that, that really factors in to something that I I love about board games. So you mentioned that you love the way the way that you you know learn about the world through the games, and I, and I obviously share that too. Even but that such maritime engineering game, where you know, <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed by directing the floodwaters rather than simply trying to block the water everywhere. I I, I very much enjoyed the Dutch maritime engineering game. Uh, what, what what was it called, Mark? It was, it's one of the pandemic. Rising, rising tide, tide, I believe. Yes, yes. Yes, for anyone um, out there who's not familiar, pandemic is probably the most successful franchise of cooperative board games. Um, and they now do a series of spin-offs around other cooperative endeavours, um, one of which is maritime engineering in the Netherlands. Uh, which I could recommend. Yeah, I'm not sure technically, is it maritime engineering? Or is well, it I suppose it's it anti-flood engineering, civil, civil, and and uh, slightly soppy engineering. <laughs> but one thing that I I love about board games is the way in which a well the the mechanics of a well-designed game serve to transport you to a different time and place. Mm. More famously, it would be the setting of the game, the, the the fact that you're looking at a map of 20th century America and the cards all have names of politicians and civil rights events on them. But the fact that the mechanics put you in a position where you are having to make decisions similar to the decisions that those people made, um, that is delightful in and of itself. Um, it's delightful as a way of being sucked into something that isn't, you know, the day-to-day concerns of life, but is something that's really fun and engaging. But it's also just delightful as an intellectual exercise 
And I would I would encourage anyone who enjoys, you know, board games or enjoys thinking about rules and systems and stuff like anyone that. Who like, anyone who has read the Lib Dem conference standing orders. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Um, to, to have a go at trying to define a set of rules that no matter who comes along and sits down, picks up those rules and plays that game, will find themselves making the same kinds of decisions. It's extraordinarily difficult. And I think that, um, and, and I say that partially because perhaps after all my years of trying to design board games, I haven't yet successfully designed one, so maybe it's just difficult for me. Um, but there is a beauty to that, the way in which a, a simple set of rules can create for lots of different groups of people the same kinds of tension, the same kinds of decisions, the same kinds of delight and excitement an and drama. Of, of complex precisely that happens, which is, I mean, has has become quite a large part of science in terms of understanding, for example, flocks of birds and so on, and how you get these hugely complicated movements of large swarms of birds where each individual bird is actually only making a relatively small number of relatively simple decisions, but you add that together and it produces this amazing, yeah. beautiful, breathtaking yeah. swarm of birds sweeping graciously. You know, right. know where to go. And, it just, and, and it, I think you're right, for a game designer, part of the pleasure must be coming up with the equivalent set of rules. Although I guess the thing is that what, has made, I think what gives a lot of say scientists involved in studying things like swarms of birds, real pleasure is being able to boil it down to the simplicity of the explanation. And that's almost the slightly caricatured heart of brilliant science is you come up with the one theorem, the one equation. Yes. Board games, you look at their rule books. Oh my goodness, board game <laughs> rule, rule book writers do not love simplicity and clarity. Well <laughs> well, that's, no, 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 no. They are um, famously um, in need of some editing, improvement. Stop editing. Um, yes. Rewriting. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Throwing in the bin, starting again. And in fact, I wish I could remember the name of that chap who you refer to as Canadian checked shirt chap. Um, I but bet you this... if you Google Canadian check shirt game review. Oh, I'm so embarrassed up. I forget his name. Let me just because... try this live and see whether that works. So the... I'm going to type Canadian <laughs> check shirt game reviewer. What do you reckon? I don't know. It's not, it's not going to work. It's uh, not going to work. Review... Oh, I've misspelled reviewer. Let's see. Well, that's your problem. Uh... Ah, no, it doesn't. What a so, no, but however, if you no, that. no, no, that's the thing, though, Mark. The reason I bring him up, he's not a reviewer. This chap mm -hmm. dedicates himself to the noble cause of the crusade against rule books. He does, mm -hmm. he does videos about how to play board games, and he just takes each game. I think it's called uh, "How's It Played" or mm -hmm. and, and "How to Play." In an almost, I mean, I think he must be very self-aware of given how successful he is as a youtuber about how amusingly pedantic he is in the early stages of his videos where he talks about you have to but unfold the board you have to place the board <laughs> flat you know it's yeah. um, he, 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 I, I don't know if he actually does this but in my memory he even does things like holds up a dice to the camera or a die get at me in the Twitter comments about whether it's die or dice, if it's singular. Uh, he holds up a dice to the camera and rotates it around each of the six faces to say, and it's numbered one, two. Three, four. <laughs> so uh, so I, I, he, he must do that knowingly, given how successful he is in fairness. Yes, this, I've just looked him up and this is the famous, you know, world famous Rodney Smith, um, who um, has made, I think, a very good career and living out of offering his services mm -hmm. to board game designers as someone who will record a video that explains the rules. And yes, I think, Mark, you're right that board games are, you know, traditionally, but I think they're seen from the outside as games that you have to spend ages learning how to play. And then, you know, you're only after about an hour do you start, and then it goes on for an interminable four hours. The best games, you know, insert 
utterly, utterly indefensible, generalized sweeping statement here. The best games are the ones that generate that quality of delightful, horrifying experience from a very simple set of rules. And I would say 1960 isn't that. 1960 is a game that through its, through the depth of the setting that it evokes and the, how the rules, the mechanics of the game put you in the, in the shoes of those player, of those historical characters, you actually effectively reenact that setting between you. But you couldn't say of this game, it's one that brings about that uh, experience through simplicity. But there are, for those people who listen to never mind the bar charts, but are have, have not yet had a positive board game experience, mm. there are actually many games out there. So what would you that recommend? Are very quick to learn. Ooh, putting me on the spot. I knew this was going to come and I haven't prepared for it. Um, how about let, let me let me come back to you at the end of this with with some games that I would recommend um for politicos. Yeah. Um, that are a start, an easier starting point, or games that are just you know bring about that kind of joy from a from a simpler rule set. Well, I was about um, to wrap up. Oh, actually, no. So come to think of it, I've got loads. Means coming back. Well, actually, no. I just I just thought of quite a few actually. Okay, so Excellent. far away. So first up, in terms of games that bring about a brilliant experience. But from a simplicity, from simplicity of rules, just thinking about this from a game design perspective, games I would recommend in totally, totally different, nothing to do with politics, um, would be the game Code Names by everyone's favourite household name board board game designer Vlada Hvatil, who uh, Code Names it's it's very widely available. I think you might even be able to find it in places like Waterstones, and it's a it's a a party game in the same kind of genre as things like Articulate or, or Shrouds or whatever. And what it does is uh, put you in two teams of you know, two to six players. And you are engaged in a very simple, agonizing game of competitive deduction that I, I could not could not recommend any higher. I played it for the first time while I was sitting waiting to present the design of a board game to Vlada Kabatil himself. That was probably the thing I have most failed at in my entire life. The single biggest burning catastrophe of a failure is my pitch of a board game to Vlada Kabatil. But I did play code names just before. Quite grim Lib Dem committee meetings. <laughs> so I, yeah, I, I I crashed, I burned, I immolated. Um, I yes, and nevertheless, despite that horrifying experience, I just love this game code names. So for anyone who is um, just looking for something that you can really play with anyone, you know, the whole family, and have tremendous fun, and you'll bring it out for years on end. There's probably no better investment than code names. But and let's another, have one other recommendation then. Then maybe a more political one. A more political one. What I would say actually is, in terms of this this exact genre of card-driven games, by which we mean games where you're drawing from a deck of cards and those cards govern the decisions that you can make. I would say that the best place to start is another game by the same designer called Thirteen Days. It's the same mechanics, but it's a game that plays in probably 20 minutes. And it is about the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm. So again, we've got Kennedy, um, but this time facing off against Khrushchev, Khrushchev. I guess, yeah. Khrushchev. Um, exactly the same, but condensed. So that would give you an introduction to the card-driven mechanics. And once you've got that, 1960 is going to be much less intimidating as a, as a starting point. Excellent. Well, we could go on forever. On oh, yeah. Topic. I mean, there's yeah, masses I, and masses. We probably should wrap it up at that point. With Hopefully, we have given listeners a little bit of a sense of the fun that can be had from 1960, the board game, and maybe even a bit of encouragement for people who aren't current board gamers or haven't been for a while to try breaking out a board game and give it a try. I should just say everything we have talked about is so much more fun than Monopoly. If your idea <laughs> of board games is Monopoly... There's another yeah. world out there. It's okay. Um, so thank you very much to you, Jim, for coming on the show. And thank you very much to everyone for listening. 
people can find the, as I always say, this podcast on Twitter at Bar Chart Podcast, but particularly keen to hear feedback on this show. Would you like to hear more board game reviews? Do Jim and I basically have to spend more time playing political games so we can review another game on a future episode or not? Please do send in your feedback. Uh, to let us both know. Look out in the show notes for follow-up links to what we've discussed and how to get hold of a copy of the different games that we've talked about. And of course, if you like listening, please do tell others about this podcast and give it a rating or review in your favourite podcast app. So thank you for coming on the show, Jim, and thank you to everyone for listening. Yeah, well, thank you. This is this has been really, really fun. This is my first podcast and I am yeah grateful for the opportunity and I'm leaving it with a big smile on my face. Mm-hmm.